0: Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu, and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta, and this is a podcast about books and life. Welcome back to Island Idols. Here we are for Season 3, Episode 26, an entire season devoted to the topic of the short story. I am sitting here in my basement in Atlanta. Dad, you are sitting there in Honolulu. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm feeling a little better than I did last time. I think I was a little
1: dispirited. But I'm trying to get through this uh, this uh,
0: global pandemic crisis
1: that we're all, this pandemic. Yes, and I'll try to put the best face on it. Today I got my car washed, which I put off for a long time, so I felt good about that.
0: Well, I'm glad that you were able to get out, uh, get out a little bit, and uh, I'm glad that though there's not a lot to, to be uh, glad about when it comes to 2020. Uh, People have had more time to themselves. They've had more time to read. And uh, I bet there's a lot of people this year who've decided they're going to give a little bit more of themselves to reading. And so here we are to help them out. And uh, I guess we hope that some people will devote a little bit of their time to the topic of the short story. And dad, that's what we're talking about this season. But today, we want to dig into an introduction you wrote for uh, a work entitled The Complete Stories of Robert Louis Stevenson, Dad, in 2002. So let's get right into it. In 2002, Random House published this book. Can you tell us uh, how this project happened and how you came to write this introduction?
1: Well, actually, it it goes back earlier, 10 years earlier. Uh, Northwestern University Press first asked me to uh, prepare an edition of Robert Louis Stevenson short stories, a selected edition, which I did, and that was published in 1993, it was called uh, Prince of Storytellers. Prince of Storytellers was a, a phrase that was attached to a newspaper obituary of Stevenson in San Francisco when he died in 1894. And I thought it was a good phrase to use as the uh, title for the, for the edition. But that edition was selected. You know, only a number of short stories were, were published. And then after I did the edition with the uh, uh, Random House of Kidnap, they asked me to do an edition of the short stories, all the short stories. And so I said, okay, that would be fine. And then they wanted to include Jekyll and Hyde, which I was a little reluctant to do because Jekyll and Hyde is like a work that's got a life of its own. But uh, they said, no, you can't have an edition of Stevenson's stories without uh, Jekyll and Hyde. And Jekyll and Hyde, of course, pushes, you know, the limits of the short story. You know, so remember we talked about what makes a short story short or whether what's a novella but, uh, of course, from the point of view of the publisher, Jekyll and Hyde had to be in there, so we included that. And this includes all the st- all of Stevenson's stories that were collected in his three published collections of stories and some that were uh, not collected in book form earlier but were appeared in magazines.
0: So when Random House was putting this collection together, who did they identify as the audience? Who did they think would be buying this book?
1: Well partly it's a uh, college audience but i think also it's a general audience because uh, random house's modern library books really uh, are dis- usually they would be displayed in general bookstores and so if a re- any reader was rummaging through a book and wanted to read something by stevenson or found stevenson and saw these short stories she might pick it up so it was not just it was not really a college text You're very unlikely to find a college class that's that's uh, ordering a thick volume of Stevenson's uh, short stories.
0: It's an attractive book. I mean, I think it's relatively inexpensive, and uh, it comes with a lengthy introduction. So, when you when you're sitting down to introduce a book of of stories like this, um, how do you plan that out? I mean, what is your mindset in sitting down to prepare, you know, prepare the readers for? Uh, these classic stories.
1: Well, it was. It's an interesting question, and actually, I'm not sure exactly how to respond to it. I mean, it was really writing an essay on Stevenson's short fiction. I mean, instead of thinking of introducing readers to uh, writing an introduction for readers, it's really writing an essay about Stevenson as a short story writer. And in doing that, I really wanted to give a whole, give a, uh, a sense of where the short story came from, and Stevenson's uh, really seminal role in preparing uh, for the modern Ameri- for the modern short story, which we talked about, I think, last hour. And so that's why in this introduction, I talk a lot about the French short story and the early American short story, and Stevenson's, you know, positioning himself to change that so that uh, he created a story that was really, you you know, became more influential among English writers and American writers. So, I mean, I would say the two most important writers following Stevenson would would be Rudyard Kipling and Jack London in terms of being very popular short story writers and really serious short story writers. And they both, you know, looked to Stevenson as did Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, you know, who, uh, when he, who thought that Stevenson's story, the pavilion on the links was the first short story, uh, in English. So Colin Doyle's, uh, you know, you know, the author of Sherlock Holmes, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he admired Stevenson as a short story writer, how I came to write the introduction. Once I saw, I was writing a story, an essay on Stevenson, then it was a question of how do you write a critical essay? And basically, I tried to outline the uh, the aspects of his short fiction that are most uh, that are you know significant. His role in the, you know what what he wrote about, how he went about writing it, and to isolate certain thematic elements that are you know that are that dominate his uh, his writing.
0: One of the things you said was that um, after World War II the genre, the short story, really exploded. Um, what was it about that time period that really led to the short story taking off?
1: The short story was uh, a very strong form in the 20th century. I mean, really, and I, I would say that, uh, of course, between after the Second World War, when you had the expansion of uh, creative writing programs, you know, young people were writing short stories and the publishers were more apt to be publishing short stories as collections. And so it was a, you know, I would say there was, a, and there were a lot, many, there were many more writers. And so you had a real profusion and, and certain magazines were very, very important. in, you know, in America, uh, a magazine like the New Yorker, a magazine like Playboy, these magazines like Esquire, these were very important in, in, you know, supporting, you know, paying young writers, you know, to publish fiction in their uh, in their uh, magazines.
0: But the purpose of your essay is really to establish the fact that there was what you call an impressive history to the short story long before World War Two. Um, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of that history uh, that Stevenson is a, is a part of?
1: Well, before Stevenson, of course, you had uh, French writers. I mean, a writer like Guy de Maupassant, the French, the French short story writer, was, almost, was actually contemporaneous with Stevenson. And he was a very, very, very popular and widely uh, read and recognized short story writer. In America, Hawthorne's influence as a short story writer still held sway through, throughout the, most of the late 19th century melville wrote short stories but you know melville was sort of a figure that was very well uh, virtually unknown Mm -hmm. except uh, one of his stories that became a classic bartleby but in the 1890s in england uh there was a publisher uh who brought out a collection of uh volumes under the title the keynotes series keynotes and the the uh the, the, the uh, name referred to an illustration on the binding of the book so that the author's name would somehow be, be dramatically illustrated and the initials and the bindings themselves would be very artistic and Aubrey Beardsley, the great English uh, artist of the, late, of the 1890s was very influential in these books. These books were all collections of short stories. So each volume, the keynote series was a collection by George Edgerton or a collection by, you know, any number of people whose names are largely forgotten. They were very popular. The other thing was that newspapers and and newspapers would be publishing short stories. And so everybody wanted to write short stories and people that wanted to be writers could see a market for short stories, and also you had in America you had. We talked last hour. I mentioned O. Henry. O. Henry had an enormous influence on market on, on short story publication. You had other writers like Richard Harding Davis, which people might remember for a short story called, the, you know, the most dangerous game on earth, in which hunting. Other people became a very, you know, became the subject of the story. Richard Harding Davis was a correspondent, but he also was a, you know, popular short story writer. So by the time, say, the 1920s came along, when you had magazines in America, where I can speak to America more easily than to the British popular, you know, front, uh, magazines like Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, uh, all published short stories, and Scott Fitzgerald made his he made his reputation by publishing stories in these in these glossy magazines. So, in the twentieth century, the short story was a, a very co- it was a commodified form for writers who had were trying to make a living as writers. And you you know, a novel is a, takes a long period of time, and short stories were easily accessible.
0: Okay. I mean, obviously, we're taking this introduction about Stevenson. I want to use your introduction, though, to think even more broadly about uh, about how to analyze stories or what to look for in stories. And one of the things that really fascinated me that you explained and expressed in your introduction was uh, had to do with the what you called the moral element in Stevenson's uh, fiction. You said that Stevenson. Really uh, shared this with uh, Hawthorne, the American author, and you said, hey, how could it not be? How could Stevenson not have this moral element in his writing when he grew up, you know in this strict orthodox, you know, Calvinistic upbringing? And my question for for you about that is 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 this moral element a deficit in fiction? In other words when you when you were describing that moral element I mean I think I took it to mean that this was this was a if not a flaw in his writing it was Stevenson captive to the Victorian age and uh, at least at least in, in part this is a complicated
1: question i'm not sure if i can you know respond to it uh, clearly enough by a moral element it is not that a story makes a moral point, you know, that the moral of the story, I mean, it used to be, I mean, say said the moral of the story is the wages of death
0: mm-hmm.
1: stories, you know, that's, that was a 19th century, you know, predilection. Mm-hmm. And Stevenson is not, is not uh, engaged in that kind of uh, attitude. I, perhaps I should say that moral with Stevenson is more like philosophic. Mm -hmm. And what is the meaning of the uh, story that he's writing about? And the meaning is really philosophical. And these are the questions that I raised in the introduction, you know, questions of, uh, you know, uncertainty or dilemmas that people face or, you know, unresolvable issues or irresolvable tensions within the individual. These are all the issues that come up in the stories. And uh, the 19th century, the Americans tended to be more moralistic in the sense they wanted the story to have a moral tack to the end. Mm -hmm. The French were not interested in that. The French were more interested in the style and the expression of the tale. So Stevenson was not just interested solely in style, but he was also interested in, in the philosophical idea. So in a way, I was trying to say, Stevenson is merging the Americans who had that overtly moral idea and the French who were solely concerned with the fastidious expression of the tale. And he tried to create something that was in a way a kind of tenuous balance between the two
0: well and i got the sense in from reading it that that you were you were presenting stevenson as something a, a, of a bridge between one era and the modern era and what allowed him to be that bridge to some degree was the fact that he did have an, a, an appreciation for and an understanding of this overtly religious background he wasn't shackled by it he was able to break free from it and raise certain existential questions that 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 readers would appreciate and and would want to explore with him, but I wanna I wanna drill in on you wrote more than once about the modern reader, and one of the things that you attribute to the modern reader is a penchant to sort of wanna wanna lay aside some of these some of these moralistic stories. If they if the modern reader sensed a story maybe uh, too wedded to you know, the traditional past, the modern reader would, would really not want to engage uh, with that the way previous readers would have. And so that leads me to want to ask you the question, uh, what do you understand modernism to be? Could you explain modernism uh, to our listeners?
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that maybe the word that we should insert here is didactic. One of the things that modernism was opposed to is didacticism. And a story does not, is if, if a story is trying to make a didactic point, trying to teach something, that becomes something, you know, that the modernist, you know, would be uh, initially uh, opposed to or, you know, uncomfortable with. But you're asking the question about modernism, which, of course, is, uh, you know, is a huge question. We could put it with a capital M. Mm-hmm. And this is something that emerged in the late 19th century, Although it's always identified with World War One, that's because where World War One should have started at 1900 instead of 1914. It would have been very good. The historians and teachers would have been happier because you know they identify modernism with World War One, but it really begins earlier. It begins sort of between 1890 and the turn of the century, and the modernists were basically rejecting. 19th century, what we would call Victorianism. They were rejecting a lot of the principles that Victorianism sort of upheld. Uh you know, a lot of them had to do with uh, church
0: mm-hmm.
1: and religion. Modernism tended to be the modernist the modernist artists, they tended to be, I don't want to say anti religious, but they tended to shuffle or shuck off religion. They tended to be uh individualistic. They tended to be much more interested in the self or the individual in terms of uh, the nature of consciousness, the nature of psychology, which became, which was emerging in the late 19th century. Don't forget William James is becomes a psychologist in the 1890s. Freud is doing his early work then. So psychology... Uh, anti-authoritarianism and individualism and of course you know uh the whole issue of sexuality and the introduction of sexuality into literature instead of being hidden you know behind you know closed doors and never brought into into the uh into the light of day mm-hmm in this introduction, I used the example once before about Henry James, who, a critic who said that people could understand what James was writing, he'd be censored, <laughs> you know. And Stevenson was always accused of never using women in his fiction or well, what they think of what they think of the big novels. And Stevenson always said, he says, if I can't use women, if I can't describe them plainly, if I can't describe sex plainly, I'm not going to write about it because it'll just get censored away. That's why, in my first uh, my first work on Stevenson with the story, The Beecher Fol I Sa, Stevenson actually does introduce sex, and he had a real problem with it in the publication of it. So modernism was both an intellectual, it was a psychological. It was uh, uh, artistically, it was a revolutionary expression. All of those things that you see, that differentiated the early 20th century from the 19th century in painting, in music, in uh, literature. I mean, so if you think of the great modernist figures, what comes to mind, James Joyce, you know, Stravinsky, Picasso, you see all of these people who were experimenting with art and in a way that would have looked absolutely bizarre to a good, upstanding Victorian.
0: Perhaps the only, what I would add was, as I, as I think about modernism from uh, a theological perspective, which is, of course, you know, the area uh, where I've given it the most thought, I think of going even further back to the 17th and 18th centuries and to the Enlightenment. And, uh, and I, I like that phrase you used, a focus on the self, I've, I've spoken about it in terms of it, a turn to the self. And so where you have you know philosophers like Descartes and that famous you know, dictum, I think, therefore I am, you have this foundation of reason being the uh, entryway to truth. So whereas before the Enlightenment, it would have been popular to uh, affirm that truth was accessible by way of divine revelation. Uh, The rise of the Enlightenment and modernism began to open the door for the possibility that truth could be found within and that ultimate truth could be discerned on the basis of one's own faculties.
1: You've got Martin Luther at the back of your mind there.
0: Well, you know, I don't, but that is a common argument, is that Martin Luther laid the foundation for this individualism by standing up to the Roman Catholic Church and saying, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. I'm held captive by my conscience. And so there have been a lot of historians who have tried to, if you will, put the blame of the enlightenment at the foot of the reformation. Uh, I don't think that's that that's true. I think there's a difference between deciding uh, the theological question of who has the quote-unquote authority to decide the best interpretation of scripture but uh, that's certainly an argument that's been made and then you know by the time you get to America I- in the very early 1800s this this turn to the self begins playing itself out in very interesting places so you think about the revivals of the second great awakening well you you begin to have preachers like Charles Grandison Finney who go around basically arguing that you have everything you need within you you have the inner capacity to turn and follow God. Whereas, you know, Stevenson's father would have uh, certainly exhorted people to follow God, but he never would have said, you have the, the capability of doing it. But by the early 1800s, Finney was arguing that and preaching that. I mean, that's that's Ralph Waldo Emerson. That's Walt Whitman, you know, the
1: song of myself, you know, I am large, I contain multitudes. You know, I, I you know, mm-hmm. Leaves of Grass. I mean, this was part of the transcendental movement, and it was part of the Romantic movement in literature in England. Wordsworth, mm-hmm. you see, so that turn to the self did not was not the beginning of modernism. It was the beginning of the Romantic movement, but of course, it extends into the twentieth century. And with modernism, of course, the subjects become a little more, uh, shall we say. Ordinary, and they become a little more, and, and the uh, expression becomes a little
0: more uh, radical and uh, experimental. And I think you mentioned it as well. There was this critique of external authority, and this elevation of internal authority. So again, the self, one's own opinion, one, one's own sense of reality. Uh, would begin to trump whatever institutions uh, might have believed or said, and so we talk today, even in the 21st century, don't we, about sort of the anti-institutionalism of our day, that has its uh, its its roots going back into this this modern period. Well, of course, but of course,
1: you know, the First World War is so important because you see the Great War, as they call it in uh, in England. The young people was really, it was a, you know, viewed it as the, uh, as the decimation of their generation on the part of old people. Everything associated with the old world, they wanted no part of. And so Victorian became almost a dirty word in England. You see, uh, a man like Lytton Strachey wrote a series of biographies. He called it Eminent Victorians, and it's really ironic. You see, and in a way, Stevenson's reputation started to collapse in this period simply because he was such a popular figure in the late Victorian era that they want people wanted nothing to do with him. They just wanted nothing to do with anybody who was associated with the Victorians and really what they thought of as the cause of the Great War and the destruction of a generation. You see. Uh, It was a great poem by Wilfred Owen, uh, Dulce and Decorum Est, you know, I mean, uh, we all went to die for, you know, decorous reasons, you know, or people, you know, uh, and there was nothing decorous about it. And so the experimentation, the uh, desire for a new life, for a new world, uh, the emancipation of women, what was known as the new woman, all of these things were identified with modernism. And uh, its its, its height came about, of course, in the 1920s. I mean, the reason the 1920s is really one of the great, great artistic, I think, periods uh, in our, uh, you know, in American uh, culture and even in, in British culture is because it opened the door to so much experimentation and creativity. People were not held back by traditions, by institutions, by ideas of what was pre- proper or conventional, and they just were free to experiment and to pursue the world as they, as they understood it or as they desired it.
0: And I think what, what's interesting is that all the while that's happening, and you're describing this modernist movement in literature and self-discovery, I mean, at this time you also have uh, theologians like Karl Barth who are reflecting upon the Great War. And are pushing back against this idea that had become popular, which was basically that we're 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 in, we're all inherently good. And theologians like Karl Barth looked at World War One, and they said, "Wait a second, that um, that little aphorism, you know, that people are basically good on the inside, really isn't making sense of the world that I'm looking at." And so, when he wrote a commentary on the Book of Romans, he sort of turned. Uh, he turned things upside down by presenting a view of humanity that by the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, a lot of what I would call liberal Protestant theologians who were embracing modernism, they now had to grapple with the reality of, of a world war that didn't, uh, didn't portray people at their best, and if anything, made the opposite argument that uh, there's a lot of wickedness inside.
1: I don't think the uh, great modernists, uh, the artists and the uh, philosophers, the musicians, have any belief that man is innately good. I mean, I don't I don't see that. You certainly don't see that in, in the writers that I'm familiar with. I mean, uh, people like Scott Fitzgerald or Hemingway or Katherine Ann Porter or Joyce, I mean, they were not uh, – you know, they were not...
0: Uh, not optimistic about human nature?
1: Marianas or anything like that.
0: Dad, you mentioned... Uh, let, let me go back to your introduction. but I, I, I want to stay on the topic uh, that uh, really I think you lay out for us in the course of your introduction. But you uh, you described the Protestant mind. And uh, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. I'm, I'm quoting you as a Protestant. Um, and I'm not trying to trap you, but I do want to know, know what what you're getting at, and maybe what led you to describe the Protestant mind in these terms. And here's what you said. You said it's the inward-looking self trying to discover an unblemished soul. The inward-looking self trying to discover an unblemished soul. Did I write that? You wrote that. That was your your summary of the Protestant mind, really. And I mean, as I as I reflect on that, just maybe trying to get into your mind and figure out what are you looking at. I think that you were describing perhaps <laughs> in in my circles we call we have called Presbyterians the frozen chosen. <laughs> in other words, they understand themselves to be chosen by God, God's elect, but it doesn't seem to give them great joy you know it's that trope that they're going around with a frown on their face you call it in your introduction the dour scots
1: well that's the scots that was stevenson's view of, of of scots presbyterianism
0: so i think that's what that's what you appear to be describing there in the protestant mind maybe that that scots presbyterianism as as perhaps as stevenson understood it stevenson understood his countrymen. he understood you know he
1: came from his father of course was deeply religious and he had to break with his father but his father was also but 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 his father was also an engineer and he came from a family of engineers they built the lighthouses you know so stevenson was someone caught between a culture where science was a was a working part of their lives and the other part of their lives was his deep spirituality which he as a young man had rejected so he was able to and he also looked at the what 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 effects this kind of attitude or shall we say this religious uh, orthodoxy had on people and he's just his favorite one of the one of the words one of the phrases i remember in a poem of his i found that was in a manuscript the long scots faces right and you know that's that's the way he looked at it and uh it's not that he didn't understand it. And it's not that he thought the antidote to that was to look out and to look at the sunshine, go to the South seas and everything is gorgeous, but that attitude, you know, he found rather uh, profound.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, it's ironic to me that as you were writing this chapter or this essay, I was beginning my, you know, seminary studies. So here, here you are, Describing for a lot of readers the Protestant mind, while your Protestant son is uh, in the midst of Protestant studies,
1: I'm not sure I thought of myself as describing the Protestant mind, but it's possible.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, for what it's worth, uh, I I don't contest that that was Stevenson's interpretation of Protestantism. I'm uh, who am I to argue with what what he thought? I certainly would protest. That that is a good characteristic of a healthy Protestant mind, mm-hmm. you know. I think sadly, sadly, any any movement can be poorly represented, and you never want that that poor representative to be your representative. But to change, of course, just a little bit. One of the things that comes out in your introduction is just uh, amazement at Stevenson's. You mentioned his versatility mm-hmm. as an author. And you also mentioned his productivity. So here he is. You know, I'm holding in his hand his complete stories, and this these are basically short stories, with the exception of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. He wrote numerous novels, and he died at the age of 44, and uh, that's remarkable.
1: I don't know if I put it, if I had this in the short story in the introduction or not. Uh, I said, you know, there's an old uh, classical saying: "Whom the gods love dies young." And I use that for Stevenson, but he's not the only one. But, you know, the, the productivity, actually the productivity of the 19th century, generally those writers, is really sometimes astonishing. But I'm not going to go into people like, you know, Dickens or, you know, other 19th century writers. But Stevenson, remarkable. Remar- if you look at his collected editions, I mean, none, none of his collected editions come in under 25 volumes. And he was just 44 when he died. He just turned 44. So he was really 43. Just
0: remarkable.
1: But he's not the only one. You look at somebody like Jack London. Jack London's got like 20. Jack London, I'm sure, has 30 volumes. If you
0: go on the shelf of Jack London's book. Well, it's amazing what you can do when you're not, you know, binge watching Netflix episodes of The Tiger King. You've got a lot of time. Amazing what you can
1: do if you commit yourself to so many words a day. Yeah. And that's really what it amounted
0: to you wanted to reflect a little bit on his productivity. And this is what you said. This is what you wrote. You wrote, perhaps the desire for immortality and the refusal to go quietly, however futile that, that notion to a man who had absorbed Darwin into his consciousness, compelled him to write unremittingly.
1: That sounds pretty good. <laughs> All right.
0: Yeah. What made you want to think about uh, why he would work so hard and and posit this idea that there was some part of stevenson that wanted to live beyond his life even if that meant practically denying
1: you think of immortality what is immortality well to a religious person it's another life if you're not religious where's immortality come from you can say, well, it comes from uh, children, your know, your procreation, and you, you extend your line, you extend your life through others. But of course, for artists, immortality always was in what you could leave behind, what you could create. And while I don't think artists generally create just to be immortal, mm-hmm. I mean, because that's a fool's game. Right. But the desire to create is a creative compulsion. And writers who have it, artists who have it, they don't stop. I mean, Stevenson always had a book in his pocket. He was always jotting down something when he went, you know, and he was sick. People forget how sick he was in so much of his life. So he'd write propped up in bed, you see. We don't think, Stevenson is often someone who's not thought of as an artist, but he was an artist to his bones. We think of Henry James as an artist because our image of the artist is created by people like James, but they were both compelled to uh, keep working no matter what the circumstances. And if the circumstances were dire, they just kept working. I don't think it's just, it's for immortality because of course you never really know. Right, but the the desire is unquestionable, and uh, this is one of the great stories of Henry James. I've always referred to as the Lesson of the Master, and and the, lesson, uh, the middle years, the Lesson of the Master is another story. And you see, you have a dying man who's just le- whose last novel has just come to him. He's gotten the novel, and he's got opening the novel, and he's still and he's making changes in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's already been printed, but he's making changes. These are not alleys. And, you know, suddenly he sees something else. He's got another project, but of course his life is ending, you know. You know, he thinks there's another chance, but this you know, but they keep going.
0: I guess I appreciated your sentence and your willingness to uh, to brainstorm a little bit. And I know, you, I know you're using that term immortality loosely, uh, simply trying to provide some explanation. The question that I want to ask is, do do you think that a naturalistic worldview makes it more difficult to explain great art or great artists?
1: What worldview? I didn't get that.
0: A naturalistic or a Darwinian worldview. Do you think there's something about that materialistic worldview that makes it slightly more difficult to explain? the The wonder, the beauty this this passion for productivity that these artists that you've spent your life describing portray
1: I don't think so because uh, materialism has nothing to do with the creative process. I mean materialism is a is a uh, a philosophical point of view. there's nothing to do with the creative process. The creative process is something that eludes absolute definition or In my view, you know, description. I mean, you can try to describe it, but you can't really get at what it is that makes people creative and why they continue to be creative in their lives.
0: But I guess that's I guess that's my point. And I'm is that with a materialistic worldview, you're absolutely right. You can't get at what makes someone creative because there's nothing to get other than you know, flesh and bones and synapses, you know, moving, you know, in, in, in the brain. I'm just, I'm just reflecting that. And, and I think when you reflected on, on Stevenson, I, I sensed a tension because you're saying, because you said, you know, however futile the notion to a man absorbed by, you know, Darwin, who had, who had absorbed Darwin into his, it's like somehow you were juxtaposing this man who, 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 who saw himself as, you know, uh, a process of evolution, but at the same time was reaching for the stars in a way that perhaps betrayed a uh, a belief in something beyond mere uh, mechanical evolution.
1: Well, I mean, you don't have to make art religion. It's a mistake to make art religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, the early 20th century often, you know, created the view that artists were sort of like spiritual figures. I mean, they live for art and uh, art for art's sake. They live for art, you see. And uh, but writers, artists driven by their their need to create. They don't necessarily see it as being a divine. And, you know, they don't have to see it as being something divinely inspired which, Mm -hmm. you know, old philosophers often do. Mm -hmm. And there may be something that is a kind of divinity in that inspiration, but it's a kind of divinity that you can't define.
0: I I guess I'm just making the point that even if one holds to materialism, you know, you think of Carl Sagan, the world is all there is and all there was and all there ever will be. Mm -hmm. Even if one holds to that, it seems like those who hold to it when they're looking to describe something, they often leave behind materialism, and they will borrow from other more, uh, more transcendent categories of thought. And even for a moment, as you were dipping your pen into the inkwell to describe Stevenson, you know you allowed a few a few drops to to spill outside of the worldview that that you know he held. That that one of, or at least I presume.
1: I wouldn't contest that. And I don't think there's a contradiction there, really. Stevenson may not, may believe that we're just a spot in a universe, you know, but that doesn't keep him from wanting to create. Mm-hmm. Even when he was in the South Pacific, you know, he has a line he talks about, you know, a native or an indigenous art. Maybe there's a stick, and the stick has marks on it. And the marks are the marks of an artisan or an artist. The stick is the artisan's way of leaving something behind.
0: Let's move on and and head toward the finish line. You say that uh, Robert Louis Stevenson helped readers enter the modern world, and I'm picking up on this because we're going to spend the rest of the season uh, talking about some short stories that were written in the modern world, and it's a it's a it's a. Um, it's a field that 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 you argue Stevenson helped to shape and you said he did this in in two particular ways these two ways may actually be two ways of saying the same thing but you said he did it by asserting truth is undiscoverable truth is undiscoverable and second that by asserting that uncertainty and ambiguity are the conditions of our existence so stevenson Grew up in this strict, you know, orthodox Victorian religious setting, but where he really ended at you end know the age of forty-four, and let's ignore for the moment the prayers that you mentioned he made while he was in the in the South Seas, but he ended with this basic uh, presentation of the world as one where you can't really find out ultimately what's true. And the only thing that you can really know for sure is you can't know anything for sure. And you have a great line, and I was really, I really enjoyed reading your introduction because y- you have you've memorized this line. Uh, it's this phrase: "Character is not destiny, nor circumstance, fate, but together they constitute life." Now that's that's your sentence, right? You're not quoting someone there, correct? No, that's right. And that's just, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous sentence. I, I, I may not agree with it, but it's a marvelous sentence. And, um, I'm wondering if you don't mind me asking a personal question, how that sentence, how that idea has been a source of comfort to you as you've pondered the ups and downs of life. Whoa. I know.
1: It's, it's a very hard question to answer. Uh, I think the thing about that sentence that you read back to me is to me it's philosophic,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and I think philosophy is a consolation of life. I think that the philosophic mind often finds it uh, more capable, soothing to understand, you know, the experiences that one goes through in life life in my view is is fundamentally hard and uh some people might think it's easy but it's hard and i'm not talking about the pandemic i mean people's lives are complicated mm-hmm. and they are experience all kinds of crises and uh, mm-hmm. very few escape and there has to be a way in which you understand this and you can't you can't do it by blaming yourself and you can't do it by blaming circumstances, but yourself and circumstances together are what make your life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you have to find a way of understanding that and accepting that. Sure. If I were born into a different place, I would have had a different life. This is Stevenson's, you know, lodging for the night. Mm-hmm. Sure. If that happened, happened to me, you know, my life would have been different, but, We're not in control of these things. We are in control of the way in which we respond to them and the way in which we
0: uh, adjust to them. And uh, I don't know if that's an answer to your question. And would you say that that sentence that you've put together about character and circumstance uh, is a good summary, if you will, of the, the wisdom of Robert Louis Stevenson? I would say that, yes. And I think it does. Dad, let me ask you another another question. And this is this is related. So if that's the wisdom of Stevenson, and if that wisdom you're arguing paved the way for a lot of authors in the eventually the late 19th, 20th century, perhaps even in the 21st century, correct? I think so, yes. That basic worldview. Why should someone privilege Stevenson's conclusion, above the conclusion of, say, an ancient Jewish author, and that famous you know, phrase from the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. I'm not asking you to be a theologian. I'm just saying here as a reader, we have two, let's just say two men, separated by I don't know, 3,000 years with a very different worldview. One man paved the way for, you know, presumably generations thinking a certain way about life. Another man, Stevenson, with a different view. Uh, How do you privilege as you come to these texts, these writers, how do you privilege one point of view over the other, which, you know, clearly you're doing. I don't think you do.
1: I, I'm not privileging one text over another. I think privileging texts like, you know, saying who's the greatest writer, who's the most important writer, I think it's a, it's a misguided enterprise. I think the object should be to recognize the uh, Catholicity with a small c, the Catholicity of texts and the Catholicity of points of view. And you, you read them for different reasons, and you might get succor from one, and you might get a certain kind of uh, pushback or, or, you know, a revulsion from another, but you read different texts and you don't privilege one over the other.
0: But don't you have to? I mean, aren't they fundamentally irreconcilable? I mean, isn't the, isn't the philosophy of Stevenson fundamentally irreconcilable with the philosophy of the Shema?
1: But it doesn't mean you throw you, you don't have to throw out the Bible. You can read the Bible for different reasons. You don't have to read it for its theological or its, you know, uh, what would you say, uh, its divinity. You can read it for its beauty in, in different versions. I mean, and for its wisdom. I mean, we, we talked here about Hemingway using The Sun Also Rises. Where did the title come from? It comes it from please Ecclesiastes. Please. Yeah. Hemingway was religious. No, but the sun also rises, and the sun also sets in the you know, and uh in his world, the sun also rises, and the sun also sets, and so he sees it in Ecclesiastes, he sees it in himself, and he goes on, and he uses it for a book. It doesn't make him religious, and it doesn't make him irreligious
0: or anti someone who wants to glean from any one of these writings may not be religious, but I think we can say that the author that that Stevenson was. If he, in fact, you know, held that truth is fundamentally undiscoverable undiscoverable, and we can accept that that's what he thought and, and respect that's what he thought. But certainly we have to respect that the author of the Shema would uh, argued the opposite thing, something that cannot be true. I mean, they can't both be true. Maybe well, maybe that, that, that seems overly simplistic.
1: Discoverable. I don't mean that there's such a thing that Stevenson doesn't believe in facts or
0: science. Well, no, I know you don't mean that. We truth with a capital T. Okay. And that's why that's what drove me to, you know, that passage from from the Old Testament uh, that there's a passage that does say there is truth with a capital T. So I appreciate that as readers, we can glean from all sorts of things. I'm just saying. Clearly, these two authors are saying are presenting two ideas that are mutually exclusive, and the reader can't agree with both at the same time.
1: Well, I mean Stevenson's father didn't agree with him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, what an appropriate way to end our episode today with two father with a, a father disagreeing with his son. Dad we've uh, we've dug into a lot. Thank you so much for allowing me to press you uh, hard about some of the things you wrote in your introduction. And uh, if you are listening to this, we would like you to know that uh, in a couple of weeks, we hope to uh, share an episode on Truman Capote's uh, A Christmas Memory. So yes, we are catering to December. And, uh, and plan to have a, a short conversation about that classic short story. So, Dad, thank you for your time. It's good to see you. Stay safe on Oahu, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Aaron. Good to talk to you and be, be with you.